Well, good morning. Uh, we were scheduled to have Mr. Gary here to uh, preach, but uh, he's not able to make it today. And so he sent me his PowerPoint, so I'm going to do it. So I would say, uh, if y'all got a problem with this, y'all take it up with him, not me. <laughs> but our title today is "What? Why We Do What We Do. You know, why does our worship look the way that it does? And why does it look so, in many ways, different than, than a lot of the, uh, I guess you would say, worship practices that we see out and about in the world with different denominations? You know, we see this list right here. You know, why don't we have a fundraiser or how come we don't have these big meals or maybe these uh, meals, you know, that are trying to get people here to listen to the gospel? How come we don't have a choir or a piano or put on a Christmas or Easter play or maybe even have a, a Christmas tree? And even in regards to the Lord's Supper that we that we just took, how come we don't do that instead of doing that every Sunday, how come we don't do that once a month? Maybe might could be more convenient. Maybe easier on a lot of people. We just took it once a month, or maybe even once a year. And how come we don't make? How come we don't give money every time that we meet? How come we don't uh, pass around the uh, the plate on Wednesdays when we meet? Or how come we don't give money just to meet any type of any type of purpose? If we just think that it's just a good purpose and we should be involved with it, how come we don't give money for that and support of those things? And so we're going to uh, look at some scriptures, and uh, we're going to talk about it, and, and hopefully what this lesson do will uh, give you an understanding of why uh, we don't do some of these things, but also why we do other things as well. And, and there's a lot of slides here, and there's probably going to be several slides that I don't have a whole lot to say, uh, simply because they're scriptures that I, that they... They're, they're plain uh, statements. And so we'll go through that. And so I think the really the you know really the main point here as to why we do things and why we don't do some things is in Acts chapter 2, verse 40 and 42. This was just after uh, 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 Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost in, in Jerusalem. And so there's around 3,000 Jews that are, are, are being uh, saved here at this time. And we can go back in earlier in chapter 2 and read of his message that he delivered. And, of course, after uh, many of these believed and, and were, and were uh, baptized, well, you know, during this time, he says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Uh, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. So after they heard uh, this message, they were baptized. 3,000 souls were added to them. And also, that wasn't just the end of it. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, also in their fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, later on. In verses 46 and 47, it says, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were, were being saved. So these things were being done daily, 
continuing daily with one accord at temple. They broke bread from house to house, ate their food, simplicity of heart, and praised God, and they had favor with all the people. And so these things were being uh, done daily. So we see those many aspects of of that that they were uh, that they followed the apostles' doctrines. Uh, they were in fellowship with them. They were, you know, we see later on that they were uh, that they were breaking of bread was part of that as well, and also uh, they continued in prayer. So. The apostles' doctrines, and and notice and, and recognize that at this time Jesus had already ascended, and so the only teachers that were here uh, during that time were the apostles. They were the only ones that had the ability uh, to teach, and of course these new converts there that would have been about three thousand people. Uh, a lot of people, when considering that there was only 12 apostles or 12 teachers. And so these new converts, they had uh, much uh, to learn. And this was all, or a lot of it was new to them, especially when you consider that there was people that coming from all parts of the earth to Jerusalem during that time. It very well could have been a, a lot of people that just, every bit of this was just uh, pretty, pretty new uh, for them. And we see... At the end of chapter 2, that the apostles were doing exactly what their commission required. We, we can read about that at the, end of, at, at the end of Matthew. And, of course, that uh, commission applies to us as well. But they were teaching, and they were preaching all the things that Jesus had uh, commanded there. So that's their doctrine. And so the people... We read back in Acts chapter 2 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' uh, doctrine. And this word or this phrase, continued steadfastly, uh, other ways of saying that could have been that they were uh, devoted uh, to that doctrine or teaching. They gave unremitting care to it, that teaching. And so they were particularly concerned about that, that they were, you know, their primary focus was that they were, they were want to make sure uh, that they were giving great care to that teaching and they knew exactly what was required, uh, uh, required of them. They were busily engaged in that, in that doctrine, uh, to be firm in that doctrine. So uh, they're going to uh, hear the apostles' doctrines and then they're going to follow uh, that doctrine and only of those teachings. Second Corinthians chapter four and verse two, reading out of the English Standard Version, it says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is Paul writing here, and notice what he has to say about himself and uh, these other uh, other apostles, it says, We have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. Interesting enough, I believe it's in Second Corinthians chapter 11, when this, this word used for cunning is the same, it's the same uh, word that was used when uh, basically uh, Paul's talking about the serpent deceiving Eve with cunning. So it kind of gives you an idea of what this, this, this word means. That they're just... You know, they're kind of being a little sneaky with how they go about presenting the truth. Uh, it says they refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. I was reading somewhere and it says this, this Greek word that is used as tamper is only used only in this place uh, in the New Testament. And a lot of times it's in reference to diluting wine. 
So you kind of get this idea of this dilution of wine, uh, this diluting of God's word. You're you're intermingling it with other uh, ideas that lose the effectiveness uh, of God's word. But when you do those things, but it says by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So. The way that they were portraying this is plainly and openly stating the truth. When somebody was watching watching them, they could say, you know, they and they were, you know, they had these good, honest consciences. They could look at that and say, these people are uh, these people are uh, giving us the truth. They are saying these things are truth. You know, they're you know they're not being underhanded uh, with this. They don't have some ulterior motive. They just w- want to go about and uh, let this word uh, be known. Also, so you see the word, you see how they're how they're portraying or how they're uh, delivering this word. And one question when we when we're thinking about this subject is when we're out and we're studying the word or we're we're having these lessons. Have you noticed how much scripture is read and referenced in the preaching and teaching and our worship? How much time we spent studying the word? It wasn't that long ago we just spent time just reading, uh, going through and reading uh, the entire Bible. And so we spend much time uh, in that and, and looking at those scriptures. And so the effort is made to, or the, the effort ought to be made uh, to, you know, do whatever, you know, whatever we see uh, or whatever we do, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We see that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 17. So what, whatever we're doing, whether that's here, even if that's out in the world, that we strive to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so that means, you know, really ultimately by his authority. If, if does our life match up with the word that he gives us? Does it, do we live out or strive to imitate the, uh, you know, the, the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus? And so we ought to make that effort uh, to do exactly what that verse says. And so the apostles' example, they were doing exactly what God approved of. And so they were being led with the Spirit. They had this knowledge that was given to them by the Spirit. And so they, they could know exactly what God approves of. And so they were doing these things. And so we strive, and again, we all to strive, to worship uh, doing the things that the apostles did. Because, because they were doing what God approved. And so if uh, they were doing what God approved, we ought to do, and, and when we do uh, do the things that the apostles did, uh, God approves of us as well. And so we do what the apostles did because God approves those things. And so when we go outside of these examples, the problem with that is is we don't know whether or not God approves of them. And so we ought to strictly hold fast to the apostles' example and their doctrine. So they continued in the apostles' doctrine. They continued in the apostles' fellowship as well. So what does that mean? Uh, we hear a lot about fellowship. We hear a lot about fellowship meals and all that stuff, you know, food, fun, fellowship. Um, but fellowship, what that really means, and we look at a definition of that, uh, what it means is close mutual relations and sharing. It also can mean communion. So you're, uh, you have these close relations with one, with one another. You're sharing of things. Uh, 
this term is also used sometimes to uh, is 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 used sometimes for contributions made uh, for the poor. So you're sharing, you're giving of those of those goods to the poor. So again, we have this idea of uh, being made here. What really fellowship is? In First Corinthians chapter one and verse nine it says, "God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son." Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you were called into the fellowship of His Son. So now you have this close relationship with, uh, with Jesus. You have communion uh, with Jesus. You see these references of Scripture that talks about, you know, your heirs with Christ. So you're part of that, you know, you're part of that same family. You're part of that kingdom of God and kingdom of Christ. So you have these benefits here that you, you, that you don't have outside of Christ. And we're so we're called into the fellowship of his son, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3 it reads that with that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. So John's writing this and he says that which we have seen and heard so he He's seen Jesus. He was with Jesus. So he's seen those things. And the things that he heard as well, he says, we declare those things to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So the implication here is that we, we declare these things to you and you need to believe these things so that you can have fellowship with us. And why is that important? Well, it says, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we believe we have we have fellowship with the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. And so, uh, for you, uh, you know, if you want to be with us, if you want to have fellowship with us, and thereby also fellowship with the Father and the Son, you need to listen and to believe the things in which we have seen and we have heard. So we see this kind of interconnectedness of this fellowship and this closeness that they have uh, with uh, with Jesus and also with. Of those other brethren, but notice what fellowship is based on. It's not just based on just you know. Well, I like you, so I'm gonna have fellowship with you. There's a foundation here, and it's that word that has been delivered to us. That if we believe those things, we can have fellowship uh, with one another. First John chapter five verse twenty says, "And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know know Him who is true." And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So again, the Son of God has given us understanding so that we may know him as true. We are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. So they are in him. And so again, this idea of, of knowing him, uh, he's given us an understanding and we can know how to be in him. We, know, we can know how to have uh, this fellowship uh, with him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ has put on Christ. So you are all sons of God. Thinking about what just said about this fellowship, this close relationship, this idea, you know, it almost, at least in my mind, it kind of thinks about like you're, you're almost in kind of a family. There's a, you're very tight-knit. But here he says, you're all sons of God. How is that? He says, through faith. In Christ Jesus, that's ultimately how you become sons of God. But notice this is not also all not all of what he says is for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
Other translations say clothed with Christ. And so the question arises then, can I, can I uh, put on Christ? Can I be clothed with Christ uh, without being baptized? Can I say that I have this true faith uh, without doing uh, explicitly what God commands of me? But again, this, this idea that we see that if when I'm baptized, baptized into Christ, I put on Christ, again, uh, I, you know, this, I, this communion, this sharing, this, you know, that I am in Christ, I'm part of that kingdom. That's all, that's all connected. And we have to do these things in order for us to have fellowship with Christ. And also, just like we read in First John, also if we're going to have fellowship with one another. Okay, so we see where they uh, continued in the apostles' doctrine. They continued in their fellowship. We look, just looked at what fellowship is, and they also continued in the breaking of bread. And so, what you know, what is the breaking of bread? And we see that in Acts chapter twenty and verse seven. It says, "Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul ready to part." The next day spoke to them and continued his message until until midnight. And so Paul and disciples came together. When they came together on the first day of the week, why did they come together? To break bread. And so again, we see this pattern being developed here. And we will read later on, especially in 1 Corinthians 11, that the purpose of coming together was to commune with one another in the breaking of bread. We're reading 1 Corinthians 11 that I think plainly clears up as to what really Paul was doing is that they were uh, that, that they were participating in the Lord's Supper that's also described as breaking bread. We read in 1 Corinthians 11 there that Paul condemns them and says when, when y'all come together as a church, it's not to take the Lord or it's not for the Lord's Supper. And so the implication there is one of the primary reasons for them to even come together to begin with as a church was for them to partake in the Lord's Supper. And so it's a primary focus there. We see that with Paul in Acts chapter 20 as well, that they came together for a specific purpose, and that was to break that bread. They did it on the first day of the week. Now, of course, the question arises is which first day of the week, and we don't really know. But we see that that was a continuing uh, a continuing practice, especially with the Corinthians, and so we assume there there that they just they every first day of the week that they would come together uh, to break that bread, and we see that being a continuing trend of uh, there in those scriptures. So that's why we do it. That's why we don't uh, uh, partake of the supper on Wednesdays. That's why we don't partake of the supper once a year or once a quarter or whatever it may be. We don't partake in it if just on. Easter or Christmas or particular holidays. We also see that it's not just some common meal. It's not just social meal. I don't, I don't bring in you know whatever I want and you know and just have lunch and call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, we actually see that if you want to go back and read First Corinthians eleven, we see that kind of that idea being condemned. That if you're hungry, you go home and eat. That you don't, you don't. Come here and, and and satisfy your hunger and just make it a common meal or a social meal, and then turn around and try to call it the Lord's Supper. That's not that's not what that's about. So it's not a common meal. It's about remembering Jesus' death. In First Corinthians ten and verse sixteen, it says, "The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That cup being through the vine, the bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 
So again, this, this idea of fellowship being in here as well. We commune with the body and the blood of Christ. We're remembering Jesus' death when we partake of this. So that's all to be our focus. And when we are doing that, you know, we have to, you know, that's why we read these scriptures to try to focus our mind on Jesus' death and, and the things that he, had done, he has done for us, you know, for, uh, you know, for those blessings, for that hope of eternal life that we can have uh, through him. So it's not just a common meal, and there's specific elements of that. We go back and, and read about that in the New Testament, those specific elements that, you know, unleavened bread and fruit of the vine as well. We also, we also see prayer uh, being a, you know, a huge, uh, you know, huge part of uh, the New Testament Christians' worship. And also in Acts chapter 2, we see where they continued, you know, the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. So they continue in all of those things. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, it says, But at midnight, Paul and Silas was praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So they, while being in prison, they were doing these things. They were praising God. They were praying. And, of course, we see the effect, at least on the Philippian jailer, uh, later on in Acts chapter 16. We also see a situation that's not listed here, but in Acts chapter 4, when uh, Peter was being uh, persecuted that the uh, that that the, those that were with them they came together and they, and they prayed and uh, we see uh, where they were coming together and and so that again that's a you know, a main uh, priority uh, for them that they were always uh, regardless of what they were doing they were always taking the time to pray and Acts chapter twelve verse five says Peter was therefore kept in prison but constant prayer was offered to God for him uh, by the church. So there again, the church was praying for Peter constantly. And so I think it would be ridiculous to say that us as a church, that we ought not to pray as much, that we ought to be constantly in prayer just as they were. Praying for those that you know, need help or, 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 you know, or, or you know, praying for uh, you know, uh, us or brethren or for whatever uh, reason, these, these needs that may arise. We ought to constantly be offering of this prayer to God as they did. Acts chapter 20, verse 36, of course, that's uh, after Paul was talking to the Ephesians el- Ephesian elders, we see where they, after that, they prayed uh, together as well. So singing. We see in the New Testament that our singing for worship is commanded. We see multiple passages that says we ought, that's what we ought to be doing. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Notice what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But it says, Teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Kind of an interesting thought. You don't really think about, well, just music in general, that I'm singing this to to, to to teach somebody. A lot of times people just sing just because they like to sing. Uh, but, of course, you think about all the, you know, I think about Sesame Street and all that stuff, how they, they, they you can use those types of elements to really teach somebody. But notice what he says. That's off topic. But notice what he says here that part of the purpose for singing these songs is that we teach and admonish one another. So we're mutual, mutually edifying one another while we're singing these songs. Also, 
is praise to God. So singing with heart, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So you're you know you're praising God. Uh, you're singing with this grace in your heart that you're you know you're truly doing this with the and you're you're focusing and praising God while you're doing that. And so we can see that there in that command. Also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, kind of similar phrasing here as well. So speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So again, teaching and admonishing, you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice that it says you sing, you make melody, how? In your heart. So again, how the heart is involved, how the spirit's involved uh, with uh, this this praise and worship. Also, you give thanks always for the things to uh, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, also notice how the singing you make melody in your heart. Also, part of this is you are giving thanks to Him as well. So, this gratitude is is a part of this uh, singing as well. First Corinthians chapter fourteen and verse fifteen. I don't know exactly all, you know, exactly 100% what, what Paul is saying here, whether this is, I don't, I don't quite think that this is just some miraculous thing. I know there's a lot of talk here about these, these spiritual gifts and all that. Not quite sure how all this uh, is, is put together and not quite sure, you know, I don't really think this is just some miraculous thing that Paul's talking about. But I think there's some points that we can draw from it. It says, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. So we see here, uh, for Paul here, that you're singing, of course, with the understanding, but he's singing with the Spirit as well. So the Spirit is involved in that uh, singing as well. And I think we can, you know, I think that that makes sense, and I think that, you know, at least I would agree with that. You know, your spirit's involved with that. You are, you know, these things that are uh, spiritual in nature that you're focused on, that you're worshiping God, you're praising God. So I think, you know, this that makes sense as far as our singing as well. In Hebrews chapter 13 and 15 says, Therefore by him let's continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And so let's continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So you're praising God. And what is that? That's the fruit of your lips. Okay, so you're singing to him. That's a sacrifice of praise to him, as the Hebrew writer says. Notice again, giving thanks to his name. So thanks again is also linked with our singing. That ought to be a part of that. So we're worshiping him. We're praising him. We're giving thanks uh, to him. We're, we're singing, you know, the fruit of our lips as well. We're making melody with our hearts while we're doing that. And so, you know, really we look at all those verses and singing must be done in a way to be, you know, way to be a means of mutual, mutual, mutual edification and to praise God. Uh, the voice expresses the praise of the heart. And, of course, if that singing is to be really addressed to God. And so, you know, when you're involved with that, or, I mean, you are doing those things in that right manner, uh, it's, you know, you're praising God. It, and that voice expresses that praise of the heart. And um, Mr. Gary put this, he said, The musical address to God acknowledges His goodness and opens the heart to appreciate all that God has, has done. And I think that's a good point. 
that uh, you know we're worshiping Him, we're praising Him. It brings us to to our mind the goodness of God, and you know because of that we can appreciate all those things that God has done. We can be thankful. We can show gratitude for all the things He has done uh, through our singing. Okay. The music is characterized as spiritual because of its content and goal to bring us closer to God. And so again, we see that that praise, that worship. We're 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 knowing, we're 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 you know we're teaching, we're we're singing these things. Those things are being brought forth to our mind again. And so part of that is to bring us closer to God. Now, kind of moving on from that, I think all the time that we start talking about singing, the question always brought up is. You know, why is there no piano? Why is there no musical instruments? Why do we not have, you know, this this you know this band uh, to uh, to you know to play alongside of our singing? Well, interesting enough, we see that the introdu- the introduction of mechanical instruments was brought into worship uh, by Pope Vitalian the first between 660 and 670. Uh, uh, that would that would not be BC. That would have been AD. So, um, so that's 600 years after Christ, uh, you know, say 600 years after the apostles, you know, after that, until these mechanical instruments were brought about. And what's interesting about that is there was, there was musical instruments during that whole time. Uh, you know, anybody could have, uh, that could, could have started playing if they thought that they ought to. But notice it took 600 years for those instruments to come into worship. So why? Why, why did it take so long? Uh, should, you know, could they have been doing that the whole time uh, before? But notice what uh, some very well-known individuals have said about uh, musical instruments. And also, you know, this guy says that he's a contemporary of Martin Luther. Notice, remember who Martin Luther was and what was going on around this time. This Reformation, this you know, this uh, separation from the Catholic Church. And notice what these people that didn't want that recognized the Catholic Church for what they are, and they didn't want anything to do with the Catholic Church. Notice what they said about the church's worship. It says the church rings with the noise of trumpets, pipes, and dulcimers. And human voices strive to bear they part with them. Men run the churches to a theater to have their ears tickle. And so Erasmus says, uh, you know, the people, they're just striving to bear their part. They're just, you know, they're doing their best just to, you know, just to have their voices be heard over the, over the noise of all of these instruments. And I like this last sentence because, it's, you know, I've had this, I've said basically the same thing before. Uh, that, you know, especially nowadays that uh, people go to church and it's it's the same as a theater. You go inside and you got the nice comfy seats and you got the mood lighting. It's dark. And, you know, they have the stage and they have the, you know, the big screen on the on the stage as well. And it's it's like a theater. But here he says they run the church as theater to have their ear, ears tickled, not to hear the truth. They just want to go there because they're like what they're hearing. They're like they like this big production. Martin Luther says the organ in the worship is the ensign of Baal. So pretty, pretty harsh there. We can pretty, pretty much say, you know, or, or see what Martin Luther thought about uh, musical instruments. And of course, this is the individual that, uh, you know, I, I, you know, the Protestant Reformation began with. 
And so this is what this guy had to say about uh, musical instruments, or at least the organ. John Wesley, which if I remember correctly, he's the founder of the Methodist Church or was heavily involved with the Methodist Church. He says, I have no objection to instruments and music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. So there again. He, does want, he doesn't want instruments of music being there that they can see them, and he definitely doesn't want them to be played uh, in, uh, their, in, in their, he says, chapels, so their places of worship. He, he, didn't, want, he didn't want them to be played uh, during uh, that time. John Calvin, again, very well-known individual. He says, musical instruments and celebrating the praise of God would be no more suitable then the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law, the Papists, and of course that's the Catholics, therefore have foolishly borrowed this as well as many other things from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostles is far more pleasing to him. I believe, Mr. Gary got this, but I believe... Uh, that's a John Calvin wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and that's one of these. He he makes a statement in one of those, or, or in one section of that commentary of the Psalms. But notice what he says. He says, "Musical instruments. You know, you might as well. Uh, you know, you might as well fire up the incense, light up the lamps, do all of these things." He says that you know that's that's part of the old law. Uh, that's shadows of this law. The Papists, the Catholics, they borrowed these things from the Jews. And so, notice what he also says. He says, the men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise. He's saying these worldly-minded, these carnal-minded individuals, that's who likes this stuff. But notice what he says. The simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostles is far more pleasing to him. So John Calvin recognizes that God gave us a form of worship by the apostles. So we look for, and he was saying, if you want to see how God tells us to worship him, you look to the apostles, and we can read that in the scriptures. And that worship is far more pleasing to him. So these individuals, and you know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, that, what, they're 1400s, 1500s. So they're not, I mean, they are a long time ago, but they're not that far removed from our time. And they clearly, you know, they're staunchly opposed to any type of musical instruments in their worship. Of course, just because they say that doesn't mean that we ought to follow them, but we can see that uh, this is a common thought throughout time, that this is not just something that, uh, that just, you know, some new doctrine that, well, we ought not to have any musical instrument. This has been a, you know, this really the the idea that we ought to have musical instruments and this widespread belief that we ought to have instruments outside of the Catholic Church is a fairly new uh, invention, a fairly new teaching and belief. Adam Clark, a British Methodist theologian, says, I am an old man and an old minister, and I here declare that I never knew them productive of any good in the worship of God, and have had reason to believe that they were productive of much evil. Music as a science I esteem and admire, but instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. Uh, this is the abuse of music, and, I, and here I register my complaint against all such corruptions in the worship of the author of Christianity. So again, he lays it pretty clear as well, that he does not want this music, as he puts it, in the house of God. He doesn't want it to be a part of worship. So, uh, as one can see from those quotes mentioned, 
instruments of music, uh, they were controversial long ago. Uh, even going back at least, you know, for 600 years before the Catholic Church, you know, they, they didn't have a part of that. We see from John Calvin and Martin Luther that it was, they didn't want any part of that as well. So it was controversial. And why was it controversial? It was because it was not the way that the apostles worshipped. And that's, I mean, we see that with John Calvin. He's saying that this is not what the apostles did. And the apostles lay out a different plan uh, than what they are currently seeing. And we can plainly see from the New Testament that, that they were right in that aspect, that that was not the way the New Testament church worshiped God. You don't see them, or you don't see any of the apostles saying, you know, uh, to use these instruments or any type of language that is, that is used to imply that instruments were being used. Notice what we, what we looked, looked at. We saw you know, the fruit of our lips, uh, make a melody in your hearts, uh, all of that type of language saying that the, this, this singing or this, or this music that the church has is only that which is of singing or that, com- that, that which comes from our lips. Okay? Last side. I'm right on time. So we, so we see these uh, several New Testament scriptures talks about our giving, you know, and, you know, how do we give we see from the very beginning that people gave up their proceeds, that whether they sold their land or sold houses or whatever, and they gave these proceeds to help those who are needy. We have passages that talk about uh, that we ought to support preachers, we ought to support elders. We also see where we are commanded to uh, assemble, which means that we ought to have a place to assemble. We see, especially in, in Acts, that there's there's these many different places in which the the, uh, the the apostles met. And so what we can do there is because we don't see no pattern, that means that we, ought, we can have a little freedom as to where uh, we meet. And, of course, it arises whether or not, uh, you know, if we rent someplace like we are now, that means that we have to uh, pay for that rent. And how do we go about doing that? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, a passage that you're all familiar, or most of you are familiar with. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Notice uh, that this was a very specific situation. It was a uh, unique gesture at the time, and we see that Paul was commanding them to, uh, you you know, take up this collection to help needy saints. And what you'll find here, and what problem arises, at least at least in my mind, is we see the situation in which we, uh, this is for a very specific reason. And so the question arises, well, how do we go about uh, providing for funds, uh, collecting, you know, collecting money for preachers, elders, all that type types of things. And... Uh, at least in my mind, what what we really have to do, and what we and what I at least what makes sense to me, is I appeal to wisdom. I appeal to the apostolic wisdom and the scriptural wisdom as to how do we do these things and to what we ought to follow. And the question arises: is is do we follow uh, these patterns that were established in scriptures that God approved of, or do we go about and establishing our own? And I think when we look at 1 Corinthians 16, and especially when we look at these other passages, it talks about that we're doing these things indecently and in order, that 
this is a good way that we do these things. This is a good pattern that we do that that we that we set up in order to uh, provide the funds for those for those needs. And of course, if there is a time in which there we are actually giving for a, a need like for needy saints, of course we have uh, this scripture here that gives us that uh, that command uh, to take up that collection for uh, for uh, that need. And so again, there uh, again, I appeal to the wisdom behind these verses. And of course, I know and I recognize the context of what these verses are. But the problem arises again: is what if we if we don't follow this pattern? What p- pattern do we follow? Do we just make our own? And is that is that appealing to the apostolic wisdom, God's wisdom, or we're appealing to man's wisdom in regarding this giving? So there's that. I know some of you probably have some different opinions on, on that verse than I do, but uh, and I would love to hear them at the next hour if we're um, if we are, uh, you know, if we're going to talk more about this. But that's it. I hope it's been useful for y'all. Uh, again, this was just. I think it was probably a, 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 it's a basic lesson trying to give a foundation of why we do the things that we do. Why does our worship look the way that it does? You know, why don't we do some things differently? How come we don't do? We, you know, how come we don't bring in uh, certain elements that seems as though uh, all these other churches have? And so that's why. And ultimately, it's because we follow uh, this apostolic doctrine, or at least we strive to follow uh, this apostolic doctrine. Uh, this lesson hasn't really been much on talking about salvation uh, or you know things of that sort. But notice those verses like uh, Galatians three twenty six twenty seven. It talks about you know we're sons of God through faith, and part of that faith is being baptized uh, into Christ. We see uh, repentance being a necessary part, confession of Christ being a necessary part of that as well. We certainly, if anyone here uh, has that need, we certainly like to uh, get those things done. At least talk with you about those things. If you are a Christian and you have uh, maybe fallen into sin. And you need uh, to confess something to it, confess a sin, or need the prayers of the saints, or whatever reason it may be. We ask that you come forth now as we stand and as we sing.